Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Delta disruption from Asia to Africa. COVID cases rise sharply. Booster? Bewildered. U.S. regulators clash with Pfizer over the need for a third jab. And billionaire blast-off Richard Branson readies for this weekend's space launch. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to Friday's first move. We made it through another busy week. If you remember, Diddy stocks were dumped amid a Chinese crackdown on cybersecurity, throwing US-based IPOs into uncertainty and boosting market volatility. This weekend, Richard Branson aims for space shot viability. And England, please impress us with your football agility. Yes, OK, OK. And good luck at Team Italy, too. Just to think England need it more. Go England and go global markets. The US and Europe taking back a chunk, in fact, of yesterday's Delta variant driven losses. Bond yields are also firming up, too, after yesterday's flight into the safety of bonds, helping sentiment along the way as well. The Chinese central bank loosing lending requirements to help battle weaker growth. China One of few countries, in fact, to begin pulling back stimulus in recent months. And as we've been saying all this week and for longer, do not expect policymakers to withdraw substantial support anytime soon with so much variant uncertainty. We'll discuss the hard decisions ahead with the central bank governor, Amir Yaron, the governor of the Bank of Israel, later on in the program. And staying with Asia for now, South Korean shares fell 1% as officials there tighten COVID restrictions. The Hang Seng rose, in fact, for the first time in eight sessions after the market entered that 10% correction territory on Chinese tech regulatory fears. Today, though, the headline headache for tech stocks is down to President Biden. He's set to announce a wide-ranging executive order intended to limit the powers of big business in sectors like banking, pharmaceutical, shipping, as well as big tech. His goal, aiming to increase competition. Lots to discuss, as always. Let's get to the drivers. Asia on high alert. The Delta variant of COVID-19 surging across the region, prompting tough new restrictions. Christy Lu Stout reports from Hong Kong. Across Asia, the Delta variant is fueling a growing wave of new COVID-19 cases. In Thailand, coronavirus deaths are climbing. The country has ordered new restrictions in the capital, Bangkok, and surrounding provinces starting on Monday, including mall closures as well as limits on travel and social gatherings. Cases are also spiking in Vietnam. Both the capital, Hanoi, and Ho Chi Minh City have tightened restrictions to contain the virus. Indonesia has reported a record number of deaths fueled by the Delta variant. Save the Children is warning that many more children will die there. Its humanitarian chief in Indonesia says this, quote, the health system is on the verge of collapse. Hospitals are already being overwhelmed. Oxygen supplies are running out and health services in Java and Bali are woefully ill-equipped to handle this surge in critically ill patients. 
South Korea is raising its pandemic restrictions to the highest level in and around the capital Seoul from Monday. A health ministry official said that the country is in a, quote, dire situation with the Delta variant detected at an increasingly fast pace in the greater Seoul area. Only 11 percent of the country's population is fully vaccinated. Japan has also been hit with a sharp rise in infection. Following a new state of emergency in Tokyo, Olympic organizers on Thursday said that they would ban all spectators from Olympic venues in and around the city. Just over 15 percent of Japan's population is fully vaccinated. China has reported its highest daily tally of infection since January, with all local cases from Reili, it's a city in Yunnan province which borders Myanmar. Parts of the city are in full lockdown. According to local officials, some patients were infected with the Delta variant. In Australia, the state of New South Wales on Thursday reported its biggest daily rise in locally acquired cases this year. The outbreak began with an unvaccinated driver catching the Delta variant from a flight crew member. Just over 9% of the population in New South Wales has been fully vaccinated. The Delta variant is also ravaging the Pacific island nation of Fiji. The mortuary in Fiji's main hospital is already filled to capacity. Earlier on, countries across Asia have managed the coronavirus with some success, but the highly contagious Delta strain, along with the slow pace of vaccination in countries like South Korea, Australia and Indonesia, have given rise to a devastating new wave of the pandemic. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, let's move on. Not so fast. The CDC and the FDA say if you're fully vaccinated, you don't need a COVID booster shot yet. This comes shortly after Pfizer said it plans to seek authorization for a third dose, saying immunity from its vaccine weakens over time. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, what do we need to know and what are we learning? All right, I'm going to give you the bottom line first and then explain it. The bottom line is that if you've gotten two shots of Pfizer or two shots of Moderna, you do not need to get more shots. The only the only uh, possible uh, uh, thing that would contradict that is if you're immune compromised, as millions of people are because they take certain drugs, a third shot might actually help you. But if you're not immune compromised and you would know if you are, you'd be an organ transplant recipient, etc. You should not be getting you do not need any more shots. It is unbelievable clear why Pfizer is deciding uh, to announce this now, that they're going to apply for emergency use authorization next month for this third shot as a booster to the two shots that are already out there. There's two reasons that this is confusing. First of all, there's lots of data showing that these two shots work really, really well, even with this Delta variant. So let's take a look at some Israeli data. The the Pfizer did not give any new data. They didn't say, oh, this is why we're doing it. They just pointed to this. They said, look at this Israeli Ministry of Health data. Um, The shot is, or the two shots rather, are 64% effective at preventing infection and 93% effective at preventing severe disease or hospitalization. Let's keep those numbers up for a minute because this doesn't completely make sense. Why would you need a third shot if the first two are 93% effective at preventing severe disease and hospitalization, which doctors will tell you is the more important of these two numbers. Look how well these two shots work. Why would you need a third one? And there have been plenty of studies showing that the immunity that you get from these two shots really does last a long time and really does work well against the variants. Julia, another reason why 
uh, there's a lot of questions about what Pfizer is doing here is apparently Pfizer is having trouble reading the room. One third of Americans don't want to get the first two shots. They have so many questions, so many doubts. They don't want to get the first two shots. One third of Americans. So now we're going to tell them, oh, we were just kidding about those first two shots being protective. We think you need a third. That is not a way to get those folks to roll up their sleeves. So the FDA and the CDC, amidst all of this, said, we're going to put out a statement, which, by the way, those two agencies hardly ever put out a statement together. Let's take a look at what it says. It was incredibly blunt, straightforward, and to the point. Americans who have been fully vaccinated do not need a booster shot at this time. Also, Julia, I know you're a business person. I think you'd agree that it's very unusual for the Food and Drug Administration to say anything that even in any vague way contradicts what a drug company is saying or doing. Having that happen is really unusual. Yeah, the balance here is so important. And I think you raised the point as well. The last thing you want to do is discourage people that are already saying, I'm not sure whether I want to get this vaccine or not. And just to illustrate this point and underscore this point further, there has been other evidence that suggests that immunity can be longer lasting. Elizabeth. Right. So there have been studies that look at people who've been vaccinated for a while because the first uh, Pfizer, the first person in the Pfizer clinical trials got her shot almost a year ago. So they can really look at people and see how they've been doing over this past year. And those numbers have been looking very good. And, and particularly when you look at B cells, which are part of our immune system and they sort of hold our immune memory, as it were, that's looking really good. So, it, you know, may we need boosters at some point? Sure. Do we need them right now? The FDA and the CDC, based on the data that I just mentioned and other data, say no. No. And if you've got one shot, get the second. Yes. That's you the do other need thing. two. You may not. You probably don't need three, but you, but you do need two. Bingo. <laughs> Elizabeth Cohen, thank Thanks. you for that. OK, as the U.S. debates the necessity and timing of a third booster shot, as you were hearing discussed there, take a look at this chart. It shows vaccine doses administered per 100 people. As you can see, every continent lags North America's rate, but the gap is particularly stark for the continent of Africa. Currently, just four doses per 100 people. To make matters worse, the highly infectious Delta variant is spreading fast. Last week was the worst so far in terms of new cases in Africa, more than a quarter of a million. David McKenzie joins us now from Johannesburg. David, just explain further what the situation is there. And as we've discussed many times on this show, what efforts are being made to ramp up accessibility and to get vaccines into people's arms? Well, Julia, let's deal with the situation first. I think mm. uh, it's a very bad situation across many parts of the continent, especially here in Southern Africa. And the epicenter of the wave in Southern Africa is right here where I'm sitting, in Johannesburg, the country's biggest city. Just a few moments ago, the city announced that tragically the mayor of Johannesburg has died from COVID-related complications. And over the past few days, and in fact weeks, we've been speaking to many doctors and nurses battling this wave of COVID, it's been much worse than the first two waves. The presumption this is this is because of the Delta variant that really took over cases in South Africa to dominate previous variants in just a matter of a few weeks. This country is on another strict lockdown that will run out in a few days. It's still unclear whether they'll extend it. Uh, but, you know, hospitals are full. Sometimes paramedics wait up to nine hours to get people into beds if they can at all. Many people across the city in all parts and all walks of life are being treated at home by doctors as best they can uh, on oxygenators. Uh, and sometimes 
you know, it gets so bad that they have to go to makeshift hospitals uh, and field clinics that we have been reporting at. So the situation is bad. And the only thing really, other than wearing a mask and social distancing and these kind of lockdowns that disrupt economies badly is vaccination. And Julia? how is that going, David? Well, it's certainly ramping up in South Africa after a slow okay. start that was criticized uh, for not, in South Africa at least, for not making those bilateral deals with vaccine companies quickly enough. Uh, it must be said that it is increasing significantly in the last few days. Uh, it may not have an impact on this wave, but it should have an impact on future variants and other surges of this virus. So we're at a vaccine site which can take about 4,000 people a day at a maximum. Overall, the numbers are growing. And the good news is the categories are expanding in just a few days to include everyone over the age of 35. So as particularly uh, vaccine uh, Pfizer doses get brought in by the government, it does seem that this is ramping up. So that's a bit of a chink in this very dark situation, a chink of light. In many countries on the continent, those vaccines are not coming. Uh, though, again, the COVAX facility, which is especially important for the poorest countries uh, to get vaccines, does appear to be creaking up again uh, into action to get vaccine doses after the situation in India really stopped the export of vaccines uh, from the Serum Institute earlier this year. Julia? Yeah, we, we heard about that on the show earlier this week as well. Fingers crossed they can continue to ramp up supplies and manufacturing. David McKenzie, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Authorities say the people who assassinated Haiti's president, Jovenel Moise, early on Wednesday morning were, quote, professional killers. The group of 28 suspects includes two American citizens and retired members of the Colombian military. CNN has been told three suspects have been killed. Joining us now from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, is CNN correspondent Matt Rivers. Matt, great to have you. And uh, just explain where you are at this moment and what more we know about the plot to assassinate the president. It, it gets thicker, it seems, every hour. Yeah, I mean, what we know, Julia, is that this is a very ongoing situation. We just arrived in Port-au-Prince last night, and so this morning we're really getting our first glimpse into some of the aftermath of what's happened since that assassination. And so before I get into the investigation, I just wanna show you where we are and what's happened here. You can see some of the bullet holes here behind me. We're at a building uh, where what government officials say is that this is where a shootout took place between some of the suspects involved in this and government forces. And you can see this building here, the glass is blown out. There was some fire uh, that took place in here, more bullet holes along the walls here. And you can see this car here that's since been uh, burnt out. Uh, there's a couple bullet holes in and around this car as well. And what officials are saying is that they managed to make contact with some of these suspects involved in all of this in this location. The suspects fired from these vehicles. After it was all over, they caught fire. And that's left us where we are uh, at this moment. Now, in terms of the investigation, ongoing, like you said. However, what we know, the majority of which comes from a government press conference given last night. We know that there's at least 28 suspects so far. 17 have been detained. At least three people have been killed. Suspects have been killed and eight, according to the latest figures, remain at large at this point. Of all of the suspects, 26 
are believed to be Colombian nationals, including six of those Colombians, according to the Colombian Defense Ministry, uh, having been former members of that country's military. The remaining two are Haitian Americans, Julia. Uh, and that's where we stand right now. That's what we know. What we don't know is a motive. Why did these at least more than two dozen foreign nationals president, allegedly, according to government officials, who financed them, who is the mastermind behind all of this? The motive remains the big outstanding question, and it's something government officials have not yet addressed uh, in their statements to the press. You know, and the other thing in all of this is how did they get past the normally very robust security that exists at the presidential residence which is not far from here, maybe five or 10 minutes drive without traffic. These are questions that we don't have an answer to right now. Those are the questions that we're continuing to ask the government, but it just goes to the fact that this is a mystery in a lot of ways uh, at this moment. It is, keep asking those questions, Matt. Great to have you there. Thank you for being there, Matt Rivers. All right, so to come on First Move, don't dismiss Delta. Israel says the variant could derail progress even in one of the most vaccinated countries in the world and later in the show bitcoin may have a challenging image at times but in el salvador they want to use it to alleviate extreme poverty we'll discuss stay with us welcome back to first move live from new york where we're heading for a stronger finish for the week for the dow and the s p 500 reflation names in the bank and energy sectors trying to reinflate after sharp losses on thursday the nasdaq though underperforming as President Biden readies an executive order limiting big tech powers, among others. Mr. Biden attempting to, among other things, better protect our personal data online too. That could impact big tech profits. And speaking of profits, expect a bank earnings bazooka next week with major financial firms set to report second quarter results. Banks set to release more of the reserves they put in place for bad loans. But trading revenues perhaps could be less robust. Concern too that if profits will fall, if bond yields remain under pressure amid global growth fears. China's central bank today also easing bank loan reserve requirements to help boost lending and jumpstart slowing growth. In the meantime, Israel led the global COVID-19 vaccine drive and is now one of the most vaccinated nations in the world. 66% of citizens have had at least one dose. But in Israel, too, the COVID-19 Delta variant threatens to derail progress. Last week, its health ministry warned that the Pfizer vaccine appears less effective against the new strain. Israel's central bank downgraded its growth forecasts on the risk. However, the central bank remains confident of a near full recovery by the end of 2022. Joining us now is Amir Yaron. He's the governor of the Bank of Israel. Governor, fantastic to have you on the show. I have to say that is an impressively swift recovery. If indeed your forecasts prove true, are you that confident by the end of 2020? Thank you, Julia, for having me. Um, our recovery is expected to go through 2021 uh, by about five and a half percent and another six percent in 2022, which we assume we will pretty much close the gap that we had prior to uh, the crisis. But of course, this depends on uh, many factors. And one of them is that there is no significant uh, drawback uh, coming from the Delta uh, variant. Right now, although we see more morbidity, uh, these are not large numbers, and they have, most importantly, that's the key issue, they haven't transformed into various, very seriously ill and hospitalized uh, 
people, and that is the crucial point whether those numbers uh, will go up, and that will obviously, uh, if it does, that will affect um, lockdowns uh, potentially and more limitations. But we don't, right now, our baseline case is it will not go to the extent of lockdowns that we had before. The economy pretty much knows and has adopted to work even under some limitations. So our baseline is pretty optimistic that in spite of this, uh, we will be able to go through and exit. As you said, we've had large vaccinations. Um, mm -hmm. And so basically we're seeing the economy recovering uh, pretty much all along ex except hospi uh, hospi uh, hospitality, still some restaurants and tourism. The whole world was talking about uh, the Israeli health ministry's comments about uh, the efficacy of the vaccine, of course. And as you've said, uh, the fact that by and large it seems to be preventing at this stage uh, hospitalizations. Have you actually seen the, the underlying data for that in order to be able to incorporate it into your, your revised forecasts? We, we haven't really um, been completely exposed to this data uh, as we've done the forecast about two weeks ago, and this is really incoming data. And um, as I mentioned, there are two issues. One is the sort of uh, memory of the antibodies and, and the resistance uh, uh, the vaccine provides. But even if one does become a positive, the question is whether uh, basically the antibodies provide enough protection such that um, you do not become seriously ill and therefore strain the hospital uh, system, which is the crucial uh, point. Mm. Um, what about other risks? Because if you said this is one of the big uncertainties, you know, around the world, a lot of people talking about inflation data. I, I look at your inflation data and while it's somewhat elevated relative to pre-pandemic, that for me doesn't seem to be one of the most pressing risks uh, for Israel. Is it jobs, perhaps, that's the higher priority for you, getting those that are, as you've mentioned, in the services sector, in hospitality, back into the workplace, the over 40s, according to your data, too? Julia, you hit the nail on its head. Mm. Um, we've always, at the Bank of Israel, throughout this crisis, looked at two main issues. One is the job market. The other one is SMEs. SMEs, um, while there, um, we see a little bit of an uptick in those who cannot uh, survive, it's not the numbers uh, that we were fearing initially. The job market is improving, but slightly slower than we anticipated, and that's why we lowered our forecast from for 2021. Um, and really the issue is um, sort of structural unemployment, how much of it will be left labor reallocation, and another point is polarization. We see that jobs on the very low end, one still needs them very much. On the high-tech sector in Israel, there is huge demand uh, for, uh, for workers. It's the, the middle segment, and here you might have a, a convolution of the technological advancement that we've seen uh, through the crisis, and these, some of these jobs are more exposed and might be more difficult through time uh, to come back. And this issue of polarization in the job market is something, it's not new, but perhaps now it, has, it is meeting us and that will slow down a little bit the recovery in the job market. This is one risk. You mentioned inflation. 
Israel's inflation has been low. It's still low relative to other countries, but it is in a new level. It's above the target range now. It is about 1.5. Market rates are uh, basically for one year and onward are looking at 2%, which is exactly the middle of our target range, which is between 1% and 3%. And I think like all central banks around the world, everybody is trying to analyze Are we in a regime of transitory inflation, which is due to disruption in supply chains, uh, panned up demand, which is still uh, there due to uh, the fiscal uh, support during the crisis, or other forces that we, or or basically inflation is going to get anchored, wages are going to go up, and this is going to go on for longer. On the other hand, you have what was essentially some kind of a problem prior to the COVID crisis, which is very low inflation, central banks dealing with zero lower bound, due to the fact that we've seen a lot of technological factors, globalization pushing prices down. Which one of these forces will ultimately uh, be the eminent forces here is really hard to determine. And like all central banks, we're trying to, we monitor it, we're trying to look at it. And uh, data will tell, but right now, again, the baseline scenario is that the uptick uh, inflation is mostly transitory, and we are not seeing, at least in Israel, a risk of some kind of a major inflation eruption. I mean, you've just laid out the challenge that so many central bank governors around the world are, are trying to deal with the impact of technology, the sort of deflationary impact of that, the short-term inflationary challenges, the supply chain challenges as well. While we operate in this world where there's so much liquidity sloshing around, we have seen certain perhaps risks in the financial sector, meme stocks as they're known, rallying, uh, a hedge fund blow up, uh, Archegos that had impact on uh, banks um, in in Europe and the United States. What does your experience tell you about perhaps financial stability risks while governors around the world try and buy time for economies to recover from the pandemic. Are there risks, significant risks brewing in your mind? I think for um, Israel's financial system is very uh, stable, but obviously if you look around the world, um, in some segments uh, it looks like uh, perhaps some risks have not, I would say prices may seem like They've not perhaps fully incorporated all risks. And um, I think, again, if I look at Israel, we've uh, part of our very fortunate uh, with contraction during the COVID crisis is due to our high tech sector. And obviously we have now a very large exposure to the funding that comes from the world to NASDAQ. And um, this is obviously, I don't see a financial risks in the sense of 208 here, but we have a lot of our growth depends in this indirect way uh, through uh, the global uh, funding of the world and any correction that might happen there uh, could affect us through that. Yeah, it's good. It's good to hear and it's good to hear um, and to see a nation that's vaccinating swiftly and, and recovering, fingers crossed. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. I had planned to talk to you about uh, central bank digital coins, but you've escaped because I've run out of time. So please, please come back soon and talk to me. And um, you may or not wish to get those questions, but I'll ask you again. Thank you for your time today, sir, the governor of the Bank of Israel. Thank you very much for having me.
Thank you. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the last day of a holiday-shortened and pretty volatile trading week. A nice bounce, though, across the board after Thursday's losses. But the White House is a wild card for investors today as President Biden readies new measures to limit the powers of big business, including some of the big tech firms. In the meantime, deflated DD shareholders seeing a little bit of relief after this week's Beijing-driven drop, as you can see, higher by some 3.6% in the session so far. But Didi's dilemma not over yet. U.S. senators want an SEC probe into Didi's IPO launch and whether the firm in any way misled investors. Shares of the Chinese radar handling app are down more than 30% in the past five sessions, still significantly below, as you can see, its IPO price. Elsewhere, Bitcoin firmer and holding above the $33,000 Bitcoin level, but still off around 2% this week as China announces further crypto crackdowns, Beijing issuing further warnings to financial firms not to provide crypto services. In the meantime, crypto's ability to speed up remittances and potentially provide financial tools to the unbanked are at the heart of El Salvador's plans to make Bitcoin legal tender. The president of the Central American nation passed a new law last month that makes Bitcoin national legal tender alongside the U.S. dollar. This means Salvadorans can pay their taxes in Bitcoin and use it for any debt or purchase. Approximately 70% of the nation's citizens lack access to a bank account. The Central American Bank for Economic Integration, which promotes financial inclusion, is helping regulate the move and bringing together a team of experts. And Dante Mossi is the bank's executive president. He joins us from the capital, San Salvador. Dante, fantastic to have you on the show. And I know that you've literally just been speaking to the president of El Salvador, and I can't wait to hear how that conversation went. But first, I want to start... I can only imagine what happened at the bank when the phone call came in to say, can you help us? What's your expertise to help in, in cryptocurrencies? You can be honest. Julia, thank, <laughs> Julia, thank you. No, I'm, and I'm being honest. Uh, we know nothing. And uh, so we told the government <laughs> of El Salvador, you know, we, we'll, what we'll do is provide resources to hire the best minds in cryptocurrencies and regulation. And... Uh, I mean, he said, fantastic. And I said, look, I'm open to work with other uh, big banks that uh, want to join in. And uh, so uh, let's wait for the answer from, from the World Bank or, or the IDB. And, uh, and as you know, uh, at the end, we, we were left alone. But we are happy to you know, provide assistance to El Salvador in this regard. You make an interesting point there. You're saying that El Salvador reached out to everybody, the World Bank, the IMF, and said, look, guys, let's help. And and you're the guys that said, OK, we're going to come in here. We're going to talk to you and, and see what we can do. How can you help? Because I guess it comes down to things like regulation. I know you've spoken to the U.S. Treasury as well. No one wants to fall foul of the U.S. Treasury when your uh, currency of choice is the U.S. dollar. And that is the case for, for El Salvador. How does that work? And what did the U.S. Treasury say to you? Yeah, so, I mean, naturally, we reach out to the U.S. Treasury as they are the ones that issue U.S. dollars. And uh, so, uh, you know, basically, we want to play the game uh, for El Salvador safe. I mean, at the end, I mean, I think this is uh, an innovation. This is an economy who suffered heavily from COVID because it was closed down for several months. So uh, the, the president, what has, you know, indicated is that they want to adopt innovation as a way to change and you know shorter the times to get where they were and in even better places so 
uh, in that sense, I mean, the uh, government of El Salvador wants to actually make a quality jump into financial inclusion, digital innovation, and at the same time, I mean, follow the rules of uh, money laundering and uh, anti-corruption, which, as you know, um, you know, these are heavy issues for, for this region of the world. So we want to ensure that El Salvador does it right. And uh, so we did chat with uh, the U.S. Treasury and uh, to, you know, reach out. How, how do we do it? And they said, look, do it right. I mean, uh, this is financial innovation, which is fantastic. Just ensure that whoever you engage with has the proper permits, licenses, right. and uh, it's very transparent and everyone is aware of the risk. And uh, so you don't go into a bit bit uh you know a transaction and then you find out that you sent the equivalent to a hundred dollars and you got fifty. So what happened to the other fifty? It might be, you know, uh because Bitcoin uh, fluctuated. Um, so you need to have a lot of uh yeah financial sector education Knowledge. and uh, exactly. So that that's what we are providing and we are actually, you know, we, we told the government uh you should listen because there's a lot of uh, opinions uh, going back and forth. And uh, if I told you, Julia, how many emails we got from people who's willing to help. But so we are hiring a top-notch guy. So to help us assemble the team, we uh, just, I mean, I'm in El Salvador and uh, we met with uh, the Minister of uh, Finance, with the President. So they already have their own team and uh, we have our lead uh, specialist who's talking to him to understand uh, what exactly uh, we should do in the short term because there's only uh, you know a couple of months before this goes fully online. And, and Denton, uh, that's my could... question. I'm going to interrupt you there because you're getting to the really exciting yes. bit, which is the fact that you met the president of El Salvador. We, I think we really have a picture of you actually from the meeting <laughs> yesterday. Um, yes. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, Dante, do they understand that there may be better options, that if the cases that we want to facilitate greater efficiency, lower transaction costs for remittances, which is just shy of a quarter of the GDP of El Salvador, let's be clear, um, that there may be better options? Is he open to that? And is he also open to the idea that maybe it's going to take a bit more time than the three months he initially said? Yes, he's fully aware. I mentioned, for example, uh, that... Uh, I had several contacts with several companies and uh, private companies. And let me, I, I don't know what, I'm, I'm not under any uh, non-disclosure agreement, so I can tell you this. I chatted with Visa and uh, Visa has uh, services for uh, electronic wallets with Bitcoin. And uh, they said they will be delighted to come to El Salvador. I mentioned this to, to President Bukela. He said, oh, tell them to come to me and uh, let's chat. And uh, so he's, uh, he's fully aware this is a, you know, uh, in an, an arena in which there are a lot of startups and uh, there might be a lot of good ideas. Uh, but, you know, also we have reached out to MoneyGram, for example, to an, another big remittance uh, right. company. And they are more than willing to come and, you know, uh, be consulted uh, on the way forward. So, yes, they are open. I mean, the, the legal framework that the president has enacted is really actually to provide a fallback to these uh, companies that come to El Salvador because, uh, I mean, I was listening to the show and uh, you were just mentioning that in some countries now it's being banned uh, or outlawed. So what he wants to provide is a legal framework in which you can come and uh, use this uh, cryptocurrency, yeah. but you will be also liable to pay taxes, to 
to have uh -huh. the usual regulation that you have <laughs> with other uh, currencies. So, so I think it's thinking it through, right? And uh, so the regulation has to come swiftly. And uh, he's aware that if more time is needed, uh, well, more time will be requested to the assembly to enact all the, uh, you know, regulations that will protect the uh, the Salvadorian that he wants to benefit from this reform. Yeah, I mean, the statistic that leaps out to me, I, I mentioned it, 22% of El Salvador's gross domestic product um, is, is made up of remittances and around 80% of those are used for day-to-day -day living expenses in El Salvador. So tackling something like this is vital. And I know that's what you passionately feel about this too. Dante, great to have you with us. Congratulations on meeting the president. Um, can't wait to speak to him at some point in the future too about all of this and um, keep us updated on your progress. Dante Mossi there, executive Julia, president. Julia, thank you very much. Thank you for Central thank American you. Bank from, for from economic Salvador. integration. Bye. Bye. Have a good weekend. Okay, up next. The race to be the first billionaire in space heats up. Richard Branson prepares for his Sunday liftoff. We discuss next. Welcome back to First Move, Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson is preparing to blast off to the edge of space on Sunday. A full nine days before fellow billionaire space rival Jeff Bezos plans to do the same. That would launch him not just into space, but also into the record books. Rachel Crane joins us now from the launch site. Rachel, I'm envious of you once again. You've actually been speaking to Richard Branson. What did he have to say ahead of the weekend? That's right, Julio. Well, you know, this is a hotly anticipated space flight, and nobody is more excited than Sir Richard Branson himself. That's because this space flight, nearly two decades in the making, Richard Branson bought the technology to Spaceship One, which won the Ansari X Prize back in 2004. Uh, now, that technology uh, was developed uh, as a challenge for a non government entity to develop a crewed spacecraft that was reusable and could fly fly back and forth to space twice in two weeks. So Branson bought that technology and uh, uh, hundreds of engineers have iterated on Spaceship One to create Spaceship Two. You see a model of it uh, over my shoulder right here. And ba Branson has spent over a billion dollars on this program and he says he's ready to fly and very excited. Take a listen. Okay. Richard, you are finally going to space in a matter of days. Tell me, how do you feel? Um, well, I've managed to avoid getting excited for 17 years since we started uh, building spaceships and motherships and spaceports and all these things. And uh, you had to get through the test programs. And, um, and then yesterday, I finally got the call from our uh, chief engineer saying that uh, every single box had been ticked on the safety aspect and that I was, um, um, would, would I like to go to space? And uh, I hit I hit the roof. I was uh, so excited. So, um, and obviously, um, yeah, never been more excited in my life. And, and the wonderful team who are coming up with me are equally so. You talk about excitement, but tell me, are you nervous at all? I'm not nervous. I'm obviously always, you're always nervous of letting the rest of the team down. Um, I'm, I'm going up, you know, as, as someone there to, to test the customer experience. And I'm just going to enjoy every single minute of it. It's, not, it's something that, you know, I think millions and millions of people out there would uh, want to take my seat. Um, and, um, and I'm going to in, in, in enjoy every second from the beginning, beginning to the end. And it's so excited that this is the start for, um, for thousands of people who can become astronauts in future years. And 
Um, and um, yeah, looking forward to seeing a lot of those people off in future years to come. Julia, as you heard, Richard Branson's uh, objective on this mission is not just enjoying, but also to cut, uh, to test the customer experience. And a large part of that is the training. That's what Richard Branson has been doing here at Spaceport America the last few days, preparing for this uh, space flight that will be happening on Sunday. And the whole thing, Julia, will be live streamed. So unfortunately, you know, you and I and the rest of us, we won't be in that cabin. But seems like we'll be get we'll get some good uh, some good eyes in there. Yeah, some good visuals. We'll be watching, Rachel. I know you and I will. Um, and none of this, of course, is to do with beating Bezos into space. Nope. <laughs> Time for the lucky socks. Rachel Crane, thank you very much for that. All right, there's more tech after the break. Those dancing dogs are back. Tech of all shapes and sizes on show in England. And our Anna Stewart faces her biggest challenge yet. Stay with us. That's coming up. Goodwood's Festival of Speed celebrates motorsport and car culture, but the sellout event in England also has plenty of tech on display, with big and small firms showing off everything that's new and improved. Our Anna Stewart also tried on a Gravity Industries jet suit. That's an outrage of monumentous proportions. You may remember it's something we highlighted on the show in May. And you can see the result in Marketplace Europe. She clearly survived as Anna joins me now. Anna I'm not sure I will ever forgive you for getting to try that out before me, but let's talk about Goodwood as well. It is the coolest car park in the world. Another man to win 11 I mean, it really is. This is the annual event for petrol heads. And of course, they missed out on going last year. The pandemic cancelled it. I'm not sure if you'll be able to hear much of me. The cars going past it are very fast. They're very noisy. Motorbikes too. And also some beautiful old vintage cars. But quite aside from that, there's another side to Goodwood's Festival of Speed. And that is the Future Lab, which is where you really get a glimpse of what's going to happen in the future in terms of mobility. And we have been trying out flying cars, robo-taxis, cars that can transform into a motorbike when you get into traffic and you need to weed your way through. Absolutely extraordinary innovation with huge amounts of financing, of course, big limitations when it comes to regulations. So you do wonder if any of these innovations will ever actually become a reality on the roads. But such a fantastic event to be at. And obviously due to COVID, this is still a pilot event from the government because restrictions haven't completely lifted here. It is a full capacity. That is hard to believe looking at the crowds here today, uh, but it isn't a, a day that's certainly being enjoyed by many, particularly all the motorsport enthusiasts. And perhaps I'm a new one, Julia. Now, for that uh, jetpack experience, did I take to the skies? How far did I go? Well, I'm going to leave that to your imagination. You will get to see, of course, the full experience on Marketplace Europe. That's on Saturday, July 24. Put it in your diary, Julia. <laughs> Lovely. Can you give us a clue? Did your feet take off the ground? <laughs> I think it was less Iron Man and sort of more little sort of bunny hops, if I'm honest. It was all controlled and I know it was very elegant, as always. And a great job. Looking forward to seeing that. Thank you very much and have fun today. It looks great. 
All right, tensions are high, meanwhile, in England and Italy right now, as both countries have national pride on the line ahead of Sunday's Euro 2020 football final. You know, I would never want to be accused of bias in anything, although, let's face it, you all know where I come from. So, obviously, a bit of um, undoing, undoing that. And representing Italy, our Paula Monica, whose family hails from the south. Paul, great to have you with us. I have to say, in terms of my specialist subjects, football is certainly not up there, and you call it soccer, so that's not an auspicious start. How much do you know about football? football soccer by the way yeah i mean i i am rooting for italy um, you know my family mostly from calabria and sicily we've got this that oh, i bought wow. a couple of years ago. remind you that yes italy has won some major titles a little bit more recently than your beloved three lions i, I think it's a 55 year drought unfortunately but uh oh. yo it's interesting Sachs is predicting that you will be happy on sunday and i'll be crying in my vino because they are saying that England will defeat Italy two to one in extra time. But to put all that in perspective, you have to keep in mind that originally Goldman Sachs and this tournament began, they thought that Belgium was going to win. Italy beat Belgium. Italy also beat Spain despite being an underdog there. So my Atsuri, I'm happy that they're the underdogs on Sunday. I know. We're At least they came out. At least Goldman Sachs actually had a go. I went back to how well they did in the World Cup and they were saying it was going to be a Belgium-England final and actually ended up France-Croatia. So I'm not sure whether we trust Goldman Sachs. Perhaps we're better off trusting some of the meerkats, the mystic meerkats that we've discussed this week on the show or rabbits, I believe, also also, um, predicting um, an England win. I'm not sure about this. I, I I think Italy do have it. We're not, I'm not sure about um, are mystic mammals or animals of any kind. But I do believe Italy has a um, has gone 33 games without losing an international fixture, Paul. I think Italy may have four yeah, on its side. Impressive. impressive streak, but you guys do have Harry Kane and he is uh, oh. quite good. Oh, good grief. Now you're mentioning players. Now I'm in real trouble. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> Mike, <laughs> thank you so much. We'll reconvene on Monday and, um, yeah... I'll lift you sharpened up on the, some more football details. Great to have you with us and good luck, Paula Monica. And thank you to you and hi to your family, by the way, in the South. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World is next and have a good weekend. We'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.